Well, to model good practice, I think we'll, uh, we'll make a start. Uh, gents, welcome to Burning Man again. It's fantastic to see you here this morning. Um, we're in a slightly different part of the church uh, today. I, they're doing some repair. It escapes me what, what's going on in the main church. I, I forget, but uh, they're doing some works. Um, be assured of that. So uh, we may be in here for the next few sessions, but fantastic to see you again. Uh, and very exciting this morning to welcome the Reverend Dr. Graham Tomlin to the house. Uh, Graham um, was a man of many talents. Uh, he was the uh, vice principal and then acting principal of Wycliffe College before the Bishop of London invited him across to help establish uh, a new theological college and a new way of training for the Church of England, really, uh, in London uh, by setting up St. Melitus College, uh, for which he was the dean for the last few years, uh, where myself uh, actually trained under his tutelage, which was very exciting, and then he was, in fact, my boss. So uh, I've had many dealings with him, and he probably rather too many to, um, for his preference with me. But um, it's fantastic to have him. He was uh, the dean, and he's now the principal of uh, St. Melitus College, which is the biggest college now in the Church of England. Um, he's the only theologian I can think of who's uh, just as happy uh, preparing a paper on Luther's 95 Theses as he is his fantasy football team for each Saturday because he is both uh, also the only man I know who is an avid supporter of two football clubs, um, Bristol City, uh, and then also to sweeten that most of the time, Manchester United, although I think they're in reverse at the moment because Bristol City are top of the table whilst Man United languish. So um, it's probably a, a good sign a man of such interest uh, shows that the Church of England is in very good hands. So we're very excited and uh, thrilled you can be with us this morning, Graham. He's here to speak to us on Moses as we continue our theme in Old Testament Men of God. So would you please give a very warm welcome to Reverend Dr. Graham Tomlin. Good, thank you, Pat. Always nice to visit old boys. Pat's not wearing the old boys tie today, I can see. Just because you know we don't have an old boys tie, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Pat's going to design one next. Anyway, it's uh, very good to be here. It's um, Burning Man, or Iron Man, as my wife insists on calling it. Um, so are you going out to that Iron Man thing again? <laughs> I know, it's Burning, Burning Man, Janet, don't worry, so sorry. I think she has a great, greater sort of expectations of my levels of fitness than I have. But um, it's great to be here, and um, uh, it's lovely to come here every now and again to uh, open the scriptures together. And uh, today I'm going to talk about this um, about Moses, and that's what we're going to think about today. But as we as we do, let's uh, pray together for a moment. Let's just be be quiet. Just take a, a moment of. Silence to remember that we are in the presence of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, it's our prayer today that we would hear you speaking clearly to us. And Lord, we know for that to happen, two things that need to take place, that you need to speak, and Lord, we know you're always speaking to us, but also we need to, to listen. And so we pray for... Uh, listening ears. We pray for ears that are open to your word, for hearts that are ready to receive it. Send your Holy Spirit upon us now, we pray. That spirit that enables us to, to hear, that spirit that gives us soft hearts ready to be touched 
your presence. So shape us and form us, we pray, according to the character of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, today we're going to um, uh, anchor our thoughts on um, Exodus chapter 3, very well-known story. Uh, it's the story of Moses uh, at the burning bush, kind of pivotal moment in uh, the life of um, Moses, this man of God. So uh, if you've got a Bible, you may want to turn to that, Moses, um, Moses uh, Exodus um, chapter 3, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 14. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Just um, you can sit and listen, and uh, I'll read it to you. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. And so now... Go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Well, there is uh, the story of the burning bush. Very pivotal story in the Old Testament, pivotal story in the uh, uh, history of Moses' life. And uh, in many ways, when you think of it, it's actually a very, it's a very contemporary story. There's all kinds of contemporary resonances, I always think. Um, 
Moses, of course, is a, is a Hebrew. He is a Hebrew uh, living in uh, an Egyptian context. In other words, he is, he is a member of an ethnic minority in a society where in many ways he doesn't really feel at home. He is a member of a small ethnic group in a much larger and in some ways quite foreign society. At the same time, he is brought up in this uh, Egyptian royal court. We know the story about the, the uh, uh, Moses and the bulrushes and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and Moses, um, by this kind of strange journey, is brought up right at the very heart of power within the Egyptian royal court, the home of the pharaoh. And yet he is kind of caught, if you like, between this context in which he's brought up, this Egyptian court where uh, he is given all the privileges of power, but at the same time very conscious of being a, a member of this small oppressed minority, this, the, the, the Hebrews themselves. And uh, even at this stage, he has quite a deep social conscience uh, for the sufferings of his own people. And uh, in the chapter just before, we read how um, the Israelites, his own people, and he's conscious of being part of them, uh, are harassed by quite an oppressive government. And he, uh, of course, sees an Israelite, one of his own tribe, being beaten by an Egyptian. And um, his blood boils with um, anger at the injustice of this action, and he steps in, picks a fight with the Egyptian, and he kills him. And uh, he suddenly realizes, of course, he has done something terrible, and so he hides the body. He, he has to, uh, to, to try and cover up uh, the traces of his crime. But, of course, he can't entirely cover up the trace, traces of his crime, and he realizes that others have seen him. And so what he does is he has to flee. He has to run away. He just has to get out altogether. And so now we find him at the beginning of chapter 3, um, living uh, across the border from Egypt. He's come out of Egypt into Midian. And uh, he is there tending the flock of Joseph, Jethro, his father-in-law. He's basically got a job with the family. And he's escaped to his wife's family who will look after him. And he's given this job of tending uh, Jethro's sheep. And so uh, by the time this story starts, Moses is someone who is, if you like, twice dislocated as a person. Um, he is uprooted from his own sort of ethnic background. He is brought up in this strange environment uh, of the Egyptian royal court. And now because of this incident, this murder that he's committed, he has to be dislocated yet again. And here he is doing this kind of nothing job as a farmhand, as a sheep tender in the deserts of Midian. And so you sense with Moses, this is a kind of moment of his life where he's kind of asking that question that maybe sometimes we ask ourselves, who, who am I really? Where do I belong? Uh, is he an Egyptian? No. Is he a Hebrew? Well, kind of yes, but, but no, because he's brought up not in a Hebrew environment. He's brought up in this Egyptian environment. You know, is he a, a good person? Well, I'm a Hebrew. I'm kind of connected to Yahweh, the the God of the Hebrews, and yet I've murdered someone? All those questions you, you sense are sort of swirling around Moses' mind. It's a great moment of confusion for him. Here is this person twice dislocated, asking this deep question, you know, who am I as a person? And um, so, who is he? Is he a, a refugee? That's kind of what he is. He's a refugee from his own home. 
That's one way of describing Moses. Another way of describing him is that he is a, he's a freedom fighter. In some ways, you could think of Moses as like a, a kind of terrorist. At least the Egyptians would have thought of him in that way. They'd have thought of him as an enemy of the state, someone who was an attack to government official and who was run away. He is basically a terrorist. Uh, for the police in Egypt, he is a murderer. He is someone who committed murder. Uh, from his own perspective, he's got this, I guess, this deep, anxious sense of questioning his own identity. His life has reached something of a dead end. What felt like a kind of promising beginning right at the heart of the Egyptian court. Maybe he could have all kinds of influence there. Maybe he could do great things for his own people. And yet, because of this action, he has had to run away. And here he is, he's reached a complete dead end. What's going to happen now? And so here he is in the, the deserts of Midian. If you like waiting and wondering, that's why I kind of think about Moses at this point. He's just wandering around from day to day, just looking after this rather kind of random group of sheep. And if you've ever been in the deserts of the Middle East and seen these sort of sheep and just seeing the shepherds just who wander around from bit to bit, and it's rather aimless. You kind of go wherever the sheep go. You don't tend to have too much direction to it. It seems a very aimless kind of life. I've sometimes sat watching, watching for hours on end, um, sheep and shepherds wandering around, and it's absolutely fascinating. And you kind of feel they're just they're just wandering. That's all they're doing, and that's what Moses is doing at this point. But of course, later, when we think about Moses, we think of one of the great heroes of the Bible. Um, you think of the people who led the people of Israel out of the Promised Land. So a huge transformation takes place. This rather lonely, isolated, questioning, confused, guilty person is somehow transformed into one of the great heroes of the Bible, one of the great liberators of the Bible. So how does that happen? Well, it begins in this experience. It begins in this very strange encounter. Here is Moses taking time out, minding his sheep. And he sees this odd phenomenon, this is bush that is in flames. And the way the story is told, I think we're given to understand that it's not necessarily a, 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 a strange phenomenon. Um, you know, he sees this, this bush in flames and he goes, oh, I'll go over and have a look at that. Um, actually, in desert lands where it's extremely dry, it's not that uncommon for a little spark to spark off a little um, uh, a bush like that. It's not a huge, uh, strange thing. So he goes over to, to, to watch it. What's strange is the fact that this bush is burning, but it doesn't get consumed, doesn't get burned up. That's the strange thing. So, uh, uh, so this, here he is in this hot, scorching desert landscape. His bush is smoldering away, but he goes over and he finds it's not being consumed. And as he goes nearer, it's almost as if the, 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 the burning bush is just to get his attention. And as he goes over, suddenly he hears this voice. He hears this voice. And not only does he hears this voice, he hears, this, he hears his name. Moses, Moses, coming out of the heart of this bush that is burning up. And at that moment, it's as if God gets his attention. And that, if you like, is the little turning point of the story. It's the turning point of the story of Moses. The turning point is not when he makes a decision, it's when God gets his attention. And when he starts to listen to God, when he stops being consumed with his own anxieties and his own 
fears and his own worries about what he's done and who he is. And he suddenly is taken out of himself and listens to the voice of God speaking to him. That's when the turning point of the story comes. And if we're to understand what happens to Moses and what takes him from this very confused, dislocated, unsure person to this great liberator of the Bible... We have to understand, I think, one thing. that The key thing about it is not actually what Moses does, it's actually what God does. It's not even what Moses is, it's what God is. Um, because I think what this story reveals to us, and the most interesting thing this story reveals to us, is not actually something about Moses. It's actually something about God. I think it was uh, Simone Weil, who was um, um, one of the great Christian saints of the 20th century, who said, that there's only one interesting thing about religion. And that's God. Um, most of the rest of religion is pretty boring, really. But the one interesting thing is God. And therefore, when we read the scriptures, the, the most important thing to understand is not actually about Moses. It's actually about God. And when we read a story like this, I think what we're to look at is not so much what it tells us about Moses, but what actually what it tells us about God. Because, of course, one of the dangers of, a, 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 of looking at Bible characters, of course, is we end up kind of with a list of things that we're meant to do. Well, Moses was like this, therefore you've got to be like that. And we can end up preaching the law and not the gospel. Um, I don't know if you Martin Luther. Um, I made this great distinction between the law and the gospel. And you can read any passage in the Bible as law, and you can read any, any passage of the Bible as gospel. Um, if you preach the law... You end up, if you're a preacher of the law, you end up telling people what to do. The law tells us what we have to do. The gospel tells us what God has done. The law tells us what we're meant to be like. The gospel tells us what God is like. The law lays burdens on us. The gospel liberates us. And so when we look at a story like this, we're not just to sort of think, you know, what was Moses like and what have we got to be like? Because that ends up, you end up going away thinking, oh, I've got all these things I've got to do today to be like Moses. Actually, what the gospel does is it liberates us by giving it a, us a picture of this amazing God who dealt with Moses. And so the story of Moses, I think, gives us a key to who God is. And that's the most interesting thing we've got to learn from this. It's not what Moses was like, it's what God is like. So that's my question today. Um, what does this story, what does this interaction of Moses with God tell us about God? And that's the interesting thing about Bible characters, isn't it? It's how, how does God interact with this character? And what does that interaction tell me about the nature of of God and who he is, because actually you and I have to deal with this same God as well. We don't have to deal with Moses, but we do have to deal with his God. We're not particularly in relationship with Moses, but we are in relationship with his God. And that's what we've got to try to understand and try to uh, make sense of. So here is our question. What does this story of Moses tell us about God? Because once we've understood that, it seems we've got the key to understanding what happens to Moses as well. So, in other words, you don't go straight to Moses, you go by God to Moses to try and understand. You can only understand Moses in the light of God, in exactly the same way that you can only understand yourself in the light of God. So, our question, what does this story of Moses tell us about his God? Um, I came across a, a phrase a little while ago, which I thought was a really interesting one. It said this, God, now the word God, it, the word God is not a name, it's a job description. God is not a name, it's a job description. Actually, when you think of the name of God, actually, it's actually not God. The God of the Old Testament is Yahweh. If you like, the God of the Christians is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the name we give to God. And the key question is, when we talk about that word God, G-O-D, what God are we talking about? 
Are we talking about the God of Islam? Are we talking about the God of Mammon? Uh, or are we talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, this God that we talk about in this story, who is this God that Moses deals with? And that uh, we're given a name for God in this passage. It was there in the very last verse when uh, Moses says to God, um, you know, if I go to the Israelites and I tell them, you know, you called me, who, who do I say? What name do I give them? And uh, God said to Moses, give them this name. I am who I am. Or as it's probably better translated, I will be who I will be. Now, that phrase, it's actually quite hard in some ways to know what it means, but probably I think it means this. When God gives himself the name, I will be who I will be. It's as if he's saying to Moses, I will be who you discover me to be as you walk with me. But this is a God who is not revealed in a set of philosophical statements, but he is revealed in what he does. In a sense, he's saying, you will never understand and discover this God in a classroom. Uh, or even in Burning Man, good as it may be. Or by reading books, not even just the Bible. You will never discover this God just by sitting in a corner and you're on your own reading the Bible. Even though that helps a great deal. You will only discover this God by stepping out and interacting with him and obeying him and, and uh, dealing with him. And discovering him. And uh, learning to know this God is a bit, like, it's a bit like a marriage, isn't it? When you get married to someone, you, you know that person a tiny bit, um, but not very much at all. 30 or 40 years later, you look back and you realize, actually, I do know this person quite well. Now, with my wife, I could never could have understood all those things just by sitting and reading a book about her. I could only discover that by 30 years of living alongside each other day by day. That, that's, that's how we know each other so, so well. And so this is what God says to Moses. He says, you will discover, you will discover me as you walk with me. I will be what I will be and who I will be. And so if God is revealed to us in his actions, it's actually quite a core theological principle that you find all the best theologians say. God is revealed in his actions and the words which speak of those actions. What does Moses discover God to do? And honestly, just four things that Moses discovers about God. And the first is that God, God burns. He, he burns with fire. It's significant, isn't it, that God reveals himself to Moses. God speaks to Moses through a bush that is burning. And that image of fire is an image that's often used for God in the Bible. Right, look in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Of course, the point about fire is that it's something you don't, you don't mess with. Um, you may probably all remember that, that moment as a child, you know, when there was a, I don't know, a fire in the grate or you were messing around with your mates around the corner and there was a kind of bonfire or something and it was nice and warm and you put your hands near it and then suddenly you got just a little bit too near. And suddenly... You suddenly feel the pain of, of, of fire. And fire conveys this sense of, oh, you do not mess with fire. You can go near it, but you don't want to go too near it. If you go too near it, you get consumed, you get burned up. 
And the first thing this, I think, says about Moses and his God, this God that he deals with as he discovers God, the God is this, this one who burns with fire. You do not mess with this God. There's a sense of awe about him. And I think, unless you and I have experienced something of that little sliver of fear about this God, we've never really understood him. Or at least we've missed something vital about him. Now, of course, we know that in Jesus Christ, God has come near to us. We know that in the Holy Spirit, we are unable to, unable to participate in the very nature of, in, in, in the very presence of God. We know God to be close. We know God to be intimate. We know Jesus Christ to be our friend, our brother. And yet, if we miss this element of wonder, of awe, of fear of God, we have missed something vital about him. When God says to Moses, as, as Moses comes near, he says, come no closer. Take your sandals off because the place where you're standing is holy ground. It reminds us of this sense that God burns with holy fire. There is something dangerous about this God. And we're reminded of moments when uh, the great saints have experienced this. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, probably the greatest medieval theologian of them all, in, uh, just as he was not long before he died in 1273, he'd written this great Summa Theologica, the greatest work of theology of uh, the Middle Ages, um, this yeah, enormous work of theology exploring every possible question you can ask about theology. It's still one of the standard, most influential works in Roman Catholic theology in the world. Um, towards the end of his life, he was celebrating Mass one day, and um, as, he, as, he, as he did this, as he stood at the communion table, he, he suddenly was overcome with a sense of, 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 of awe at the presence of God. Uh, he was coming towards the end of his Summa Theologica, this great, um, this great work, and he, he, he came away from this experience of the presence of God and said, uh, I cannot finish this. I cannot finish this great work, and so it still remains unfinished. And he says this, all that I have written appears to me as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. And he never wrote another word. Because he experienced something of that awesomeness of God. That's why, of course, C.S. Lewis in the Narnia stories depicted God as a lion. Um, Aslan is a lion, the great lion. And uh, you might know that little bit in the story where um, Susan... Uh, one of the characters hears about him for the first time and um, uh, the, she's told about this, this, this character Aslan it says Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion ooh said Susan, I thought he was a man is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion safe said Mr. Beaver who said anything about safe? of course he isn't safe but he's good the um and if you know the Welsh poet uh, R.S. Thomas, he's um, a great Christian poet, kind of a curmudgeonly man, um, kind of lived on his own in a little sort of farmhouse in the west of Wales, didn't get on with people very well, but he, but he knew God. And uh, he wrote this poem about God, which I think captures this sense. He says, uh, you have made God small, setting him astride a pipette or a retort, studying the bubbles, absorbed in an experiment that will come to nothing. I think of him rather as an enormous owl, 
abroad in the shadows, brushing me sometimes with his wings so the blood in my veins freezes. Now that captures that sense of fear that sometimes this God brings. This is a God you do not mess with. And we experience it occasionally. Maybe it's a, a dark night when you're suddenly overwhelmed with the sense of the size of the universe that God has made. Maybe moments when you suddenly are aware of death and what happens afterwards. Or meeting someone with such piercing holiness that you just feel quite small in their presence. That is the God that Moses is dealing with. This majestic, fearful, vast God who burns with holy fire. So there's a first thing that Moses discovers about this God, that he, he burns. That's the only thing that Moses discovered about God. If it was the only thing that Moses discovered about God, that would be a rather terrifying prospect. But he goes on beyond that. So the first thing that, he dis- that Moses discovers is that God burns. And the second thing he discovers is that God listens. Um, this God uh, listens. In um, chapter 2, just before this passage, uh, we get these words. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and, his ja- and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So here it is. I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And what that says to us is this majestic, vast, fearsome God hears and listens. There is, of course, in our world an untold amount of unheard suffering. And of course we only hear a tiny bit of it in our news, in our media, even though media is pretty um, all-encompassing now in a way that it hasn't been in any era of the world's history. We just hear a tiny, tiny amount of the sufferings of people in God's world. There was a story a little while ago about a little boy, Hamza Khan, four years old, uh, who starved to death while his mother neglected him. And you just think of the sufferings of that little boy, four years old, with his mother just not even feeding him, doesn't take any interest, and how slowly the life has ebbed out of him. And you can imagine, just, well, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, the suffering of some, some little boy like that. Uh, we think of Christian and Yazidi girls repeatedly raped by Islamic State. You think of um, people in conflicts all the way around the world that maybe just briefly come into our horizon when we hear the news, but actually most of the time we just do not hear about them. And they go on eking out their life in loneliness and in suffering and in hunger and pain. And you think of that untold, unheard suffering. And that you walk around London. You know, you go on the tube, you walk around anywhere in London and you pass people every moment. And that when you just think about it for a moment, you might think of what untold things are they struggling with? And about you, but I, I even think of my friends, the people I do know. And I know most of the people I know have got some secret thing they're struggling with and they're uh, 
trying to manage in some way. And if that's true of the ones I do know, what about the ones I don't know? The amount of untold, unheard suffering around, whether it's an eating disorder, whether it's bereavement, whether it's drug addiction, a broken relationship, most of us struggle with something. And of course, one of the hardest things when you go through trials like that is the sense that no one hears you, that no one listens to you, and no one quite understands your pain. And uh, there are vast numbers of people in our city and across our world who feel exactly that, that no one listens. No one hears. Here I am, suffering on my own. No one quite understands what this is like. And that's why this second thing that Moses discovers about God is so, so significant. Here are the cries of the Israelites, this tiny little group of people in this vast Egyptian empire. No one listens to them. Pharaoh's not listening to them. Um, the Egyptians are not listening to them. But God listens to them. I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. As this says that this God hears the cry of every human heart. That every single one of those people that you pass today in London, God listens to their cry. He listens to your cry. He listens to my cry. Whatever that cry might be. And of course the wonderful news about this God is that if you've ever cried on your own maybe you don't we're men we don't cry do we maybe we do um, and if you've ever done that on your own and you've wondered does anyone listen does God even listen and sometimes your prayers feel like they just bounce off the ceiling this word this story tells you that God does hear you may not feel that he hears you may not hear much back from him, but he listens. He hears. There is someone who hears and listens. So the second thing that Moses discovers about this God, who says, I will be who I will be. God burns and he listens. And the third thing is that God liberates. There is, a, of course, a whole theological movement that grew out of this very story. It's uh, the uh, theological movement known as liberation theology that takes its cue from this story that God is the God who liberates, who frees the oppressed in his world. <clears throat> and that um, uh, strand of liberation theology starts from the idea that God listens to and saves those who suffer. He listens to and saves the poor, the suffering, the oppressed. And so God says to Moses in this story, I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God promises this liberation. And it's one of the characteristics of this God, of the Bible, that, God reve that, that, that is revealed to Moses at this point and that we find out about God all the way through human history, or at least through the, through the Bible, is that he saves, he rescues, he liberates those who are in desperate need. <clears throat> and he liberates not just people, but he liberates the whole creation. Romans chapter 8 talks about how the creation will one day obtain the freedom of the children of God. This is what God does. He liberates and he frees. 
And if you like, the whole purpose of God in creation is that he wants to free and liberate people and the entire world to be what it was always intended to be. He wants to free us from all that damages and spoils and destroys us. And so as God looks on a suffering world, his instinct always is to save, to liberate, to give freedom, dignity, space, to enable us to flourish as God's people in God's world. And so the third thing, that, if you like, that Moses discovers here is this, that this is a God of liberation. A God who doesn't just listen to our cries, but he acts to free us from the very things that oppress us. When you actually think of the New Testament so often, um, the main effect of sin is actually to enslave. It's to put you in bondage. And if you listen out, next time you're reading St. Paul, next time you're reading any bit of the New Testament, listen for that language of bondage, of slavery. Slavery, and it's, he talks about that in so many different ways. Um, he talks about slave, we're enslaved to the shtoikeo to kosmu, the kind of, you know, the, the invisible powers of the universe. And we're enslaved to our own passions, our passions that destroy and consume us. We think we're free, but we're not. And of course, freedom in the Bible is different from the way we understand freedom in our secular world. In our secular world, we understand freedom as freedom to do what we like. <clears throat> I can do exactly what I want. That's freedom. Freedom in the Bible is different from that. Freedom is not freedom to do whatever I like. Freedom is not freedom to abuse you and kill you and so on. Freedom is actually freedom to be who I was meant to be. Freed from all that holds me back from being all that I was meant to be. And that's the kind of freedom that God gives. So there is this third thing that we find from in the story of Moses that he discovers God to, 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 to be. is that He is a God who, who liberates. That all those fears and guilt and even death itself has been defeated in Jesus Christ in his cross and his resurrection. As we know that, Moses didn't know that. We know the ultimate freedom that is brought by Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And so it means that we can pray for and ask for that liberation now. And we can't necessarily guarantee when we will experience freedom from whatever holds us back. But we are given the promise that we will one day experience that freedom. Whether today, later, after our lives are over. That that freedom and liberty will be given to us. So there's the third thing. This is what God does. The characteristic of God. I think it's interesting, isn't it? When... when when God sends his son, he gives him a name. He could have given him any name. Brian. Pat. He doesn't. He gives us the name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Savior. That's, that's the name God gives his son. Savior, liberator, freedom. He saves. That is the primary characteristic of God. Not just that he exists, but that he saves. It's the number one thing you have to understand about this God, that he saves, he liberates. And then the fourth thing that uh, Moses discovers about God is that he, he beckons, he calls. Um, that's what God does in this story. He calls to Moses out of the burning bush. He says, come on, come over here. And not only does he call Moses to come over here, he calls him to do something. Interesting how uh, God acts in this story and how he does this work of liberation. 
Uh, he liberates the Israelites. And this is what's going to happen in the story. And we know that from the story, that, that, uh, that God will liberate the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. But it's significant why, how he does this. God does this liberation, not by waving a magic wand and suddenly the Israelites are free and in the promised land. No, he does this by calling a person, by calling Moses. God does come down to deliver them, but he always does it indirectly. This is what God does. He calls an individual. He says, come, come over here. Listen to me. I'm calling you to do something. This is God's way of liberating, by calling very ordinary, quite often messed up and confused people like Moses, like you, and like me. So this is the pattern we see over and over again. He calls Moses a refugee on the run. Someone whose life is so far full of mistakes and suffering, who's hit a dead end on the run from Egypt, on the run from his own people and so on. He calls Abraham, who is a coward who keeps on telling lies. Abraham is no great saint. He calls St. Paul this short, rather dull man. who's not very good at speaking with a bad eye condition. Then he calls him to be his apostle to the Gentiles. He calls you, and he calls me. And of course, what uh, Moses says is the natural reaction when God calls you, hang on a minute, I can't do this. You've got the wrong person here. One of the others is much more impressive than I am. I don't have what it takes. And after asking the question, who are you? Moses asks, who am I? Who am I that I should bring in the Israelites out of Egypt? And the reply comes from God, doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. What matters is that I will be with you, as he says in verse 12. And so God calls Moses to work for the liberation of Israel from slavery. Now, there are the four things that Moses learns about God. That he burns, that he listens, that he liberates, and he beckons. Now, that is the God of Moses. It's also, when you think about it, the God of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus does exactly those things. Jesus burns. There were moments when the disciples encountered Jesus, when they too were terrified. You know, when he stills the storm, and they say, who is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? Uh, when he walks across the water to Peter, and Peter says, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. I cannot live in your presence. The transfiguration, when they're kind of suddenly overcome with awe at the presence of this majestic, shining person. Jesus was someone you don't mess with either. But Jesus listens. He hears the cries of those who approach him. Even some small Syrophoenician Gentile woman who has no claim upon Jesus, but who is suffering and struggling, and Jesus hears her, her cry. Even Zacchaeus, another short, dull man. They are liking for short, dull people in the Bible. Um, and uh, Zacchaeus comes. He has no claim on Jesus. He's a tax collector. He is, he's, he's a collaborator with the enemy. And yet Jesus hears him. Jesus liberates. He liberates people again and again from sickness, from death, from sin. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus beckons. He calls. He calls the twelve. And so this God of Moses is the God of Jesus Christ. It's the same God of Moses same God of Jesus Christ, it's the same God that you and I are dealing with today. And uh, what we find in this story, of course, is that as Moses goes on, 
we find that Moses becomes like this too. Moses starts to burn. Later on, when uh, Moses comes down the mountain and he finds Aaron, his mate, his friend, has kind of you know, made this golden calf and tried to get the Israelites to worship him, he's horrified and he's burning with anger. He's burning with a sort of holy jealousy for the people of God. He finds that burning desire for God's holiness in his own heart. Moses starts to listen. He, too, hears the cries of the Israelites in slavery. And he feels, I've got to do something about this, because I've heard the cries of my people who are in in, in suffering. Moses liberates. He goes and he starts to go to Pharaoh. And and, and that really fearsome thing, that is not an easy thing to do. Go right to Pharaoh's court and say to him, let my people go. That is big guts to do that. And Moses beckons. Moses starts to call people. It's that bit later on, isn't there, in um, chapter 18, when uh, um, Moses is he's, he's struggling with a volume of stuff that he has to do, and he has this conversation with Jethro, his father-in-law, and Jethro says, well, it's, it's all right, all you've got to do, you've got to call people, organize people, get people who will, who will sit and make judgments for you. And so he, he begins to call them. And it says, Moses chose able men from all Israel and appointed them as heads over his people, officers over hundreds, thousands, fifties, and tens. So what happens as Moses interacts with this God is that he becomes like this God. And that's actually what happens to us as we interact with this God as well. And so one of the signs of someone who has really met with this God, who has done serious business with this God, is that you find this happens to you as well. You find yourself burning with passion for the name of Jesus Christ. You find yourself burning with a desire for holiness. You find yourself burning with passion for the cause of the kingdom of God. You find yourself listening to the cries of people. And when someone shares their struggles and their agonies with you, you can't just kind of walk by. You have to do something about it. Because you hear, you listen, you get a soft heart that hears. You start to find yourself enlisted in God's work of liberation. And it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's someone at work who you need to kind of just do some work with to free them from some burden that they're carrying, or you need to pray for a friend, or get involved in some, some ministry uh, where you're working for the freedom and liberation of people uh, who you're, uh, you're called to. And you find yourself being involved in this work of calling other people to come and be followers of Jesus Christ, or calling other people into ministry, or calling other people to be involved in this as well. So that's always the sign of someone who has met a holy God. If someone who becomes holy themselves, they become someone who burns, who listens, who liberates, and who beckons. So, there it is. Now, we've got about ten, ten minutes left. And uh, as I think is normal, with um, uh, your mornings together, what I'd encourage you to do is just turn to one or two people around you. And... Um, uh, I've got a couple of questions to, um, to throw out. You may want to pick one of these things, just chat about them just briefly, and then just pray for one another. Um, and the main question may be this. Who is God calling you to liberate? Um, is there some person that you need to listen to? A cry that you need to listen to and that God is calling you to get involved in that person's life, that group's life, to bring freedom and liberation. It may be that calling to pray and give to Christians in Syria who need cry out for help 
There may be lost people in London, maybe homeless people in this city, maybe people in your workplace who desperately need to know Jesus because their lives are a complete wreck. Single parent families in your neighborhood who need help to keep their kids in check or whatever else it is. So that may be one question you want to ask. Who is God calling me to liberate? The question you might want to ask and just share experiences of is, have you ever known that sense of fear that God, that sense of that, that God is one you do not mess with? And yet also that sense that God hears your cry and steps down to touch your life. You may want to share your experience of those things, your sense of God's calling. So if, I, if you can encourage you to do that just in maybe threes, because that's enough just to go around very quickly and then um, share with one another and then pray, and then we'll wrap up in about 10 minutes' time. Is that all right? Okay. Brilliant, gents. If you're still praying, please keep on praying. Just to say um, we're going to draw a line formally there this morning for Bernie Mann. Um, many thanks to Graham again for being with us this morning. Thank you, Graham. Fantastic to see you. Have you back at Bernie Mann. And hear your thoughts on Moses. Much to ponder and to continue to discuss and pray into. Uh, and just to say, um, in two weeks' time, we've got Mark Green from the LICC, London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, coming to be with us. He'll be speaking on Boaz. That's Mark Green. Um, so another great uh, chance to come uh, hear from God's word, encourage each other. So do invite friends, other brothers. There's a little bit more room to grow into. We can head up to the high altar if needs be for further space. Um, So God bless, guys. Go well. On your way out, there's a donations box. Um, uh, As you know, we encourage £5 per session or you can pay all up front for the whole term just so uh, we can cover costs and give a blessing to our speakers. Go well, guys. God bless.